Chapter One of *The Soul of the Indian* by Charles A. Eastman, Oyasa. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter One: The Great Mystery, Solitary Worship, The Savage Philosopher, The Dual Mind, Spiritual Gifts versus Material Progress, The Paradox of Christian Civilization. The original attitude of the American Indian toward the Eternal, the Great Mystery that surrounds and embraces us, was as simple as it was exalted. To him it was a supreme conception, bringing with it the fullest measure of joy and satisfaction possible in this life. The worship of the great mystery was silent, solitary, free from all self-seeking. It was silent because all speech is of necessity feeble and imperfect. Therefore the souls of my ancestors ascend to God in wordless adoration. It was solitary because they believed that he is nearer to us in solitude, and there were no priests authorized to come between a man and his maker. None might exhort or confess or in any way meddle with the religious experience of another. Among us all men were created sons of God and stood erect as conscious of their divinity. Our faith might not be formulated in creeds, nor forced upon any who were unwilling to receive it. Hence there was no preaching, proselyting, nor persecution, neither were there any scoffers or atheists. There were no temples or shrines among us save those of nature. Being a natural man, the Indian was intensely poetical. He would deem it sacrilege to build a house for him who may be met face to face in the mysterious, shadowy aisles of the primeval forest, or on the sunlit bosom of virgin prairies, upon dizzying spires and pinnacles of naked rock, and yonder in the jeweled vault of the night sky. He who enrobes himself in filmy veils of cloud, there on the rim of the visible world where our great-grandfather sun kindles his evening campfire, he who rides upon the rigorous wind of the north, or breathes forth his spirit upon aromatic southern airs, whose war canoe is launched upon majestic rivers and inland seas, he needs no lesser cathedral. That solitary communion with the unseen, which was the highest expression of our religious life, is partly described in the word bambaday, literally mysterious feeling, which has been variously translated fasting and dreaming. It may be better interpreted as consciousness of the divine. The first bambaday, or religious retreat, marked an epoch in the life of the youth, which may be compared to that of confirmation or conversion in the Christian experience. Having first prepared himself by means of the purifying vapor bath and cast off as far as possible all human or fleshly influences, the young man sought out the noblest height, the most commanding summit in all the surrounding region. Knowing that God sets no value upon material things, he took with him no offerings or sacrifices other than symbolic objects such as paints and tobacco. Wishing to appear before him in all humility, he wore no clothing save his moccasins and breech clout. At the solemn hour of sunrise or sunset, he took up his position overlooking the glories of earth and facing the great mystery. And there he remained, naked, erect, silent, and motionless, exposed to the elements and forces of his arming, for a night and a day to two days and nights, but rarely longer. Sometimes he would chant a hymn without words or offer the ceremonial filled pipe. In his holy trance or ecstasy, the Indian mystic found his highest happiness and the motive power of his existence. When he returned to the camp, he must remain at a distance until he had again entered the vapor bath and prepared himself for intercourse with his fellows, 
Of the vision or sign vouchsafed to him he did not speak, unless it had included some commission which must be publicly fulfilled. Sometimes an old man, standing upon the brink of eternity, might reveal to a chosen few the oracle of his long-past youth. The Native American has been generally despised by his white conquerors for his poverty and simplicity. They forget, perhaps, that his religion forbade the accumulation of wealth and the enjoyment of luxury. To him, as to other single-minded men in every age and race, from Diogenes to the brothers of St. Francis, from the Montanists to the Shakers, the love of possessions has appeared a snare, and the burdens of a complex society a source of needless peril and temptation. Furthermore, it was the rule of his life to share the fruits of his skill and success with his less fortunate brothers. Thus he kept his spirit free from the clog of pride, cupidity, or envy, and carried out, as he believed, the divine decree, a matter profoundly important to him. It was not, then, wholly from ignorance or improvidence that he failed to establish permanent towns and to develop a material civilization. To the untutored sage, the concentration of population was the prolific mother of all evils, moral no less than physical. He argued that food is good, while surfeit kills, that love is good, but lust destroys, and not less dreaded than the pestilence following upon crowded and unsanitary dwellings was the loss of spiritual power inseparable from too close contact with one's fellow man. All who have lived much out of doors know that there is a magnetic and nervous force that accumulates in solitude, and that is quickly dissipated by life in a crowd. And even his enemies have recognized the fact that for a certain innate power and self-poise, wholly independent of circumstances, the American Indian is unsurpassed among men. The red man divided mind into two parts, the spiritual mind and the physical mind. The first is pure spirit, concerned only with the essence of things, and it was this he sought to strengthen by spiritual prayer, during which the body is subdued by fasting and hardship. In this type of prayer there was no beseeching of favor or help. All matters of personal or selfish concern, as success in hunting or warfare, relief from sickness, or the sparing of a beloved life, were definitely relegated to the plane of the lower or material mind, and all ceremonies, charms, or incantations designed to secure a benefit or to avert a danger were recognized as emanating from the physical self. The rites of this physical worship, again, were wholly symbolic, and the Indian no more worshipped the sun than the Christian adores the cross. The sun and the earth, by an obvious parable, holding scarcely more than poetic metaphor than of scientific truth, were in his view the parents of all organic life. From the sun, as the universal father, proceeds the quickening principle in nature, and in the patient and fruitful womb of our mother, the earth, are hidden embryos of plants and men. Therefore, our reverence and love for them was really an imaginative extension of our love for our immediate parents, and with this sentiment of filial piety was joined a willingness to appeal to them as to a father for such good gifts as we may desire. This is the material or physical prayer. The elements and majestic forces in nature, lightning, wind, water, fire, and frost, were regarded with awe as spiritual powers, but always secondary and intermediate in character. We believe that the spirit pervades all creation, and that every creature possesses a soul in some degree, though not necessarily a soul conscious of itself. The tree, the waterfall, the grizzly bear, each is an embodied force, and as such an object of reverence. The Indian loved to come into sympathy and spiritual communion with his brothers of the animal kingdom, whose inarticulate souls had for him something of the sinless purity that we attribute to the innocent and irresponsible child. He had faith in their instincts, as in a mysterious wisdom given from above, 
and while he humbly accepted the supposedly voluntary sacrifice of their bodies to preserve his own, he paid homage to their spirits in prescribed prayers and offerings. In every religion there is an element of the supernatural, varying with the influence of pure reason over its devotees. The Indian was a logical and clear thinker upon matters within the scope of his understanding, but he had not yet charted the vast field of nature or expressed her wonders in terms of science. With this limited knowledge of cause and effect, he saw miracles on every hand. The miracle of life in seed and egg, the miracle of death in lightning flash and in the swelling deep, nothing of the marvelous could astonish him, as that a beast should speak or the sun stand still. The virgin birth would appear scarcely more miraculous than is the birth of every child that comes into the world, or the miracle of the loaves and fishes excite more wonder than the harvest that springs from a single ear of corn. Who may condemn his superstition? Surely not the devout Catholic or even Protestant missionary who teaches Bible miracles as literal fact. The logical man must either deny all miracles or none, and our American Indian myths and hero stories are perhaps in themselves quite as credible as those of the Hebrews of old. If we are of the modern type of mind that sees in natural law a majesty and grandeur far more impressive than any solitary infraction of it could possibly be, let us not forget that, after all, science has not explained everything. We have still to face the ultimate miracle, the origin and principle of life. Here is the supreme mystery that is the essence of worship, without which there can be no religion, and in the presence of this mystery our attitude cannot be very unlike that of the natural philosopher, who beholds with awe the divine in all creation. It is simple truth that the Indian did not, so long as his native philosophy held sway over his mind, either envy or desire to imitate the splendid achievements of the white man. In his own thought he rose superior to them, he scorned them, even as a lofty spirit absorbed in its stern task rejects the soft beds, the luxurious food, the pleasure-worshipping dalliance of the rich neighbor. It was clear to him that virtue and happiness are independent of these things, if not incompatible with them. There was undoubtedly much in primitive Christianity to appeal to this man, and Jesus' hard sayings to the rich about the rich would have been entirely comprehensible to him. Yet the religion that is preached in our churches and practiced by our congregations, with its element of display and self-aggrandizement, its active proselytism, and its open contempt of all religions but its own, was for a long time extremely repellent. To his simple mind, the professionalism of the pulpit, the paid extorter, the moneyed church, was an unspiritual and unedifying thing and it was not until his spirit was broken and his moral physical constitution undermined by trade, conquest, and strong drink that Christian missionaries obtained any real hold upon him. Strange as it may seem, it is true that the proud pagan in his secret soul despised the good men who came to convert and to enlighten him. Nor were its publicity and its pharisaism the only elements in the alien religion that offended the red man. To him it appeared shocking and almost incredible that there were among this people who claimed superiority many irreligious, who did not even pretend to profess the national faith. Not only did they not profess it, but they stooped so low as to insult their God with profane and sacrilegious speech. In our own tongue, his name was not spoken aloud, even with the utmost reverence, much less lightly or irreverently. More than this, even in those white men who professed religion, we found much inconsistency of conduct. They spoke much of spiritual things while seeking only the material, they bought and sold everything, time, labor, personal independence, the love of woman, and even the ministrations of their holy faith. 
The lust for money, power, and conquest so characteristic of the Anglo-Saxon race did not escape moral condemnation at the hands of his untutored judge, nor did he fail to contrast this conspicuous trait of the dominant race with the spirit of the meek and lowly Jesus. He might in time come to recognize that the drunkards and licentious among white men, with whom he too frequently came in contact, were condemned by the white man's religion as well, and must not be held to discredit it. But it was not so easy to overlook or to excuse national bad faith. When distinguished emissaries from the father at Washington, some of them ministers of the gospel or even bishops, came to the Indian nations and pledged to them in solemn treaty the national honor, with prayer and the mention of their God, and when such treaties so made were promptly and shamelessly broken, is it strange that the action should arouse not only anger, but contempt? The historians of the white race admit that the Indian was never the first to repudiate his oath. It is my personal belief, after thirty-five years' experience of it, that there is no such thing as Christian civilization. I believe that Christianity and modern civilization are opposed and irreconcilable, and that the spirit of Christianity and of our ancient religion is essentially the same. End of chapter 1